hello and welcome to the JLA Cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. And uh, PJ, I know um, Cardiff is uh, in a different country to uh, to England. I know it is, you know, a, a world away. Mm. So I don't know what the temperature is like for you, but um, I, I'm I'm currently uh, sweltering here. Like I, I'm I'm dying. Basically, it's very warm. It's it's stupidly hot. Uh, Wales shouldn't be this hot. I don't know what's happening. It should be cold and raining, and it's not I doing know. it. I know we, we I um I have a lot of Welsh family there are certain uh, certain things I've come to expect from uh, from uh, your noble country and um a kind of uh, uh, scorching Mediterranean heat is not one of them If I look out the window right now the trees be, are still there's not a cloud in the sky <laughs> and it's so bright I don't like it no, it's very it's very unreal. Um, now we we normally uh, we record we record these episodes obviously remotely. We're talking to each other now through the miracle of the internet, uh, and we've we've always done it with the camera off. You know, we we talk to each other just with our words. Um, you'd probably be grateful of that today because I have to say I'm I'm in a state of um, <laughs> uh, well, let's say both undress and uh, kind of uh, disquiet. Really, I'm a I'm a sweaty kind of blubbering mess at the moment it's not pretty yep same same it's <laughs> you know the thing is people say that we complain when it's cold and we complain when it's hot it's because we've got that stupid maritime climate that means that that when it's hot it's oppressive like i've been to tropical countries and the heat is pleasant there the air doesn't feel as heavy this is just unpleasant it is do you get not to not to kind of like shoehorn this conversation into something superhero related, but just as an interesting kind of thing, do when when you're watching, I don't know, American television or uh, a movie or anything that comes out of say America, <laughs> um, the one thing the TV screen or a comic book can never convey is the, the temperature. Mm. And I'm not saying that all of America is is burning hot all the time. I know that's not the case. There are it's a big big place, lots of different climates. But like, I just I've come I'm growing up. I've I've consumed so much kind of like American culture, so much Hollywood, and I, I I have this idea of what kind of like these big modern cities kind of look like. And you see all these like successful, beautiful people going about their business, and I'm like, is it not like 38 degrees centigrade right now? How are you coping? Like, I'm sweating and it's like 22, 24 at the moment. Like, and, and, and wearing lycra. You know, I'm always like, would you not just be a gross, sweaty mess all the time? So when I was in California, which was during, uh, was, would have been, it was San Diego Comic-Con. So it was August time, July, August time, I want to say. And... It was hot, but it didn't feel unpleasantly hot, even though it was probably hotter than what we've got here at the moment. So I, I don't think temperature is the only factor. Like, I was warm but comfortable out there, and some days I was even just wearing jeans. I wasn't even wearing shorts, and I was fine. So 
But I was also that same holiday. I stopped in New York for a week and they were in the middle of a massive heat wave. And that was horrible. Mm. <laughs> You'd go outside for 10 minutes and then have to find somewhere to duck inside and get yourself another cold drink and just sit in the shade. I um, I lived in... Uh... I lived in Canada for a year, and when I first arrived in Toronto, uh, the first month was spent living out of a hostel right, right in the centre uh, of the kind of downtown area. And yeah, it was like August, September, and my God, the heat was unrelenting. Like, it never went away. And when you've got like 22 people sharing like a <laughs> like a bunk room anyway, it's, it's going to get pretty soupy, like yeah. pretty pretty quickly. I do wonder, it's like, it's the same thing that like, you know, the superhero concept seems like kind of fundamentally tied to like these kind of big, bright American cities and, and the sun shines and unless it's Gotham, you know, and uh, everything is big, bright and colorful. And in the same way that like, you know, we can't cope with the temperature over there. It's the same reason that like, I think British superheroes have never really taken off in the same kind of way because... (laughs) There's something about, you could see the flash on the streets of New York City, you know, uh, Los Angeles, something like that. It's rather a different juxtaposition if you have a flash, say, uh, on the streets of Ipswich or, uh, I don't know, um, Coventry. Like it just, I don't know, it's like our environment, like our, our, our city design just can't kind of handle it in a way. It's It's like... Yeah, it's just not big enough. Like you can't imagine. Maybe London, but anywhere else, there's nothing. There's nothing tall for like Spider Man to swing from. Or oh. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's weird. Although maybe wearing like full body lycra in in the UK most of the time might be a good decision. It might be warmer. I do not know. I haven't tried it. No. I think right now, if I went out in the in the superhero costume I'm currently wearing, I'd probably be arrested for indecency. Like, you know? <laughs> good God, nobody nobody wants to see that. It's me, indecent man. But PJ, uh, in between sweating, um, you know, have you been consuming anything of interest lately? Ooh, what have I consumed? You're telling me about some burgers off air, but I was thinking more kind of like literary or uh, you know, entertainment based consumption. I'm still on my big Terry Pratchett reread. Uh, I just finished Lords and Ladies recently, mm. and that book is so good. I'd forgotten. I knew it was good, but I'd forgotten how good. That's like kind of, I kind of feel like one of my lost Pratchett books. Like I've read it, but it's never one I've like returned to. And I'm sure if I read it again, it would be it would be brilliant. It was one of the first ones I read, I think, back in the 90s when I first started getting into terry pratchett's work and that one was certainly the first witch's book i read which is an odd way to come at it but there it is and i remember enjoying it and really liking it um but i hadn't revisited it since and so on this one where i'm reading everything and i came to it and i think it's my favorite one so far of all the books i've read on this journey i'm going on at the moment because it's just superb that is a that is quite a strong statement, actually. I mean, it appeals to me personally in a lot of ways because it's still, as a lot of the witches' books are, sort of about storytelling, in this case, folklore um, and sort of the uh, the more horror side of folklore 
you know, mm. that's that sort of traditional, there's something in the woods kind of deal. While at the same time also doing Pratchett's take on elves, which seems to be a, a mixture of a bastardization of the Tolkien version of the elves mixed with the sort of more traditional fairy tale version of them that he throws together to create something unique that I really like. And there is an utterly brilliant horror sequence set in Lanker Castle where Magrat is being chased that I felt genuinely tense and a bit reading and just proved to me that Pratchett can just turn his hand to any genre and be amazing. You see, now I want to reread the witches' books, which I haven't done in a very long time. I recently reread uh, the Death books, and they are, of course, you know, wonderful. Yes. Um, and uh, I think I remember, you know, reading uh, the Tiffany Aching books, uh, and they're fantastic as well. Like, and and again, like the the Pratchett, you know, Discworld elves. To anyone listening who hasn't, this probably sounds a little impenetrable. But if you haven't read them. They they are they are scary. Yeah, like they're really kind of terrifying in a way. Um, a bit like, um, have you read or watched the BBC miniseries of um, Strange and Norrell? Yes, yes. I, I get yeah, and which Lucy and I love. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and, I agree. Um, the the portrayal of elves in that is is kind of similar. Like these incredibly chaotic, powerful beings. Yeah. Yeah, just... Oh, yes, fantastic. I haven't finished the Tiffany Aching books yet. I didn't get to read the last one because that came out after Pratchett died and I knew that was the last Discworld, so I haven't got there mm. yet. The, um, you know, talking about, like, weird bits of horror, like, creeping into um, Pratchett books, in one of the Aching, Tiffany Aching books... Um, I think it's the character of like Jack Frost or like the spirit of winter. It, no, Wintersmith. Wintersmith, yes. Yeah, but, and when the Wintersmith turns up, that's that's genuinely quite unsettling. Like, it, you know, again, if you're listening to this, you're probably thinking, "What the hell are they talking about?" Check it out. Go go read them. They are these Pratchett books are always deceptively intelligent. Like very very easy to dismiss because you go, "Ah, oh, they're just fantasy books," but like. They're so much smarter than than you would think. Even the ones that are ostensibly for younger readers, like I, last night, I just finished Johnny and the Dead, which is from the tri- one of the trilogies he did that was supposed to be for the younger readers. It's just the same though. It's the same stuff, just without the swearing and the knob gags. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was having that conversation on Twitter with um, Dave Bulmer from Sonic the Comic, the podcast, and oh, we yeah. both agreed that, yeah, actually, the kid, he doesn't talk down to kids. He just tells them the same kinds of stories with the same messages behind them as he does to adults. He just uses slightly different language to tell them. Um, I've um, uh, I, I've been reading, uh, I've been rereading uh, a Morrison book, actually, Ooh. just as a point of comparison. Uh which I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, uh, Nameless, mm. uh, with art by uh, Chris Burnham. And I do apologise, obviously, a, a larger creative team whose, whose names I, I can't bring to mind right now. Uh, from about 2015, uh, an image image miniseries, mm. which I originally collected as individual issues. And I have to say, it was a due to the gap between each installation, it was a little hard to kind of grasp the bigger picture or kind of like 
you know, appreciate it. But I got the trade a couple of years ago. And it honestly is. I think every time I read it or reread it, it goes up in my estimation. Like, I thought it was pretty good to begin with. I now think it's actually one of one of the best things Morrison has written, actually. Oh, okay. And I know um, Morrison's work kind of falls into different camps and people think about, oh, the early Morrison as being like weird, existential, surreal, psychedelic, and then the more conventional superhero kind of stuff, which is also weird. But um, if you were looking, to anyone listening who maybe wanted to expand their Morrison... um, kind of collection and isn't familiar with nameless is maybe looking at a bit of a maybe you've come to morrison through jla or through this podcast and you're looking to like branch off into some of the more kind of esoteric stuff i would recommend nameless as a good jumping off point because in addition to being astonishingly weird and abstract and uh really doing different things with with how a plot is structured or what you think is going on uh it's a very well produced book you know it's very slick the artwork is you know, kind of uh, incredible. And I think um, maybe if you're going back to some of the 80s kind of vertigo weirder stuff, you might be maybe a little put off because it's older and there's like a distance of time. But if you want a modern, weird Morrison book, I think Nameless is is so good, so good. Really, really appreciate it and rate it quite highly. I feel like I should check that out. Mm. You, should, you probably hate it, and then, then we can have a proper <laughs> we we can have a debate on the podcast about it. It's just the new grifter's mask. You know, actually, the one thing that would have improved um, uh, both Nameless and the book I'm holding right now would be more grifter masks. To be honest, um, no. <laughs> your silence. Uh, sorry, PJ. I think there was a weird audio blip there. I kind of lost what you said, but uh, you sounded like you were agreeing. Um, <laughs> Don't you uh, dare edit this to make me sound like I agree with you, John Locke. Well, PJ, before you say something uh, deeply embarrassing, um, what, what are we talking about this issue? What are we, what are we holding? What are we, we looking at? We are about to embark on a journey, my friends. <laughs> um, yeah, this is going to be it's sort of a diversion, but also sort of not. Uh, but it's also going to be our longest diversion to date, I think. Um Yes, indeed, certainly. But certainly based on, you know, we were talking about it just before coming on air and, and how we're going to cover it. But but yeah, I think, uh, you know, strap in. We're, we're going to to a strange, a strange land. Today, we're going to be looking at issue one of the four-part miniseries DC One Million, which was the November 1998 event that DC did. <laughs> uh, so you had the four-issue miniseries, which I believe was weekly through November, and then every other t- title DC was publishing at the time, there was like 30-something books they were publishing, uh, had a one million issue to tie into it that month. So we're going off the original trade, which collects the four issues of DC One Million, and then like four or five other issues, not the whole lot, because that would be ridiculous. But these are the ones DC say are key to the story, so that's what we will be looking at. But... We're doing this because, one, this is where it fits in with the JLA. Two, it's very much part of Grant Morrison's JLA storyline. It mm. introduces things that are very relevant down the line. And, you know, Grant Morrison wrote it, at least the DC One Million miniseries and the JLA issue. And what I find really bizarre about this, and I've mentioned it off-air and on-air, I think, is how 
when I was collecting my my run on JLA, when I was you know you know hunting down these graphic novels, um, DC One Million never never factored into that search. Mm. It's not it's not even numbered as being part of the series, which is very strange. When in many ways it is essentially volume five. Yeah, like it's it's basically the next book in the series. I, you know, even looking at the publication history, as you say, PJ, like the final part of Strength in Numbers came out in October '98. Uh, the next volume, Justice for All, didn't start until December '98. Like they took a break to do DC One Million in a month. Yeah, like it's it's yeah it's it's basically a JLA book. I don't know why. I don't know why it's not officially included in the continuity. Well, I think if I'm right in saying we actually own different editions of it as well. So yours is called JLA One Million, isn't it? Or uh, yes, yes. Mine has no mention of the JLA on the cover. It's literally just called DC One Million. Interesting. Now, yeah, it's because I I picked up my version years later from the others, and um, yeah, they've even slapped the. JLA, the JLA logo on the spine and the the top of a book, so it actually looks when it's on my shelf exactly like the other books in the series. However, there's no number on it. See, mine uh, doesn't go with the JLA books because it's not called JLA. It just goes on its own on the shelf. Um, and yeah, I, mine's actually the Titan edition, the UK edition that was printed by Titan in 1999, I think. And I think I did get it before Justice for All. I knew about it because it was in my local library and I'd got it out and read it because I was just basically getting all the graphic novels they had and reading them. And yeah, then when I realised it was a JLA story and sort of informed what was happening then later on in the series, I, I bought my own copy. But because it's not called JLA DC 1 million or anything like that for me. It's literally just DC 1 million. It doesn't go in with JLA on my shelf. That would kill me. That would actually kill me. I'm looking at my shelving system now. Like, I mean, I know we have to obey the alphabetical... The alphabet. I can't even speak. I'm so angry. The alphabetical ordering. But yeah, that would drive me mad. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's next to Final Night on my bookshelf. <laughs> wow, the final... The final insult. <laughs> it's, it is bizarre because, again, like, not to be too much of a granddad about it, but like, I was gathering these books in kind of like the early to mid 2000s. That was when I was tracking them down. And, you know, the internet was a, was a different place back then. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know when, where, or how I found out about One Million even existing because it's not. It's not really... Things happen in DC 1 million which are directly referenced in the following volume. Like, as, as we were saying, it is it, it forms a key part of the series canon. And yet, there's no editorial note that goes, you must go read DC 1 million. I think they, they you know, there's a couple of say like, oh, this happened in this story or this happened in this story. But I didn't know. I just had no idea that there was physically a book you could buy that would fill in that gap. And then, yeah, I think it was like uh, 2011 or 12, I was on holiday and I spotted it in a bookshop and I was like, oh my God. But I don't know where that seed had been sowed that I would even know that it was something to, that I wanted or needed to buy. 
I feel like part of it is because Morrison does such a good job of writing the main JLA book in a way that you don't need to read One Million. The events are referred to and you just sort of go, oh, well, that's the thing that's that's happened. That's fine. They know who this character is. That's fine. I just accept that because it's not... They don't make a, a big deal of it. They just sort of put it in there and have a line mm. to explain it. And you're like, okay, that's fine. That's fair enough. So, which is why I've done JLA rereads where I haven't bothered rereading DC 1 million because it still just works. Yeah. Again, that was... That was what I had to do for the longest time. And and yet now I'm so glad I've got it. It, it does feel like a kind of lost gem in a way. Like um, there's there's some odd odder little moments in it. And I think there's a lot kind of packed in. Mm. But at the same time, like you get so many wonderful Morrison moments in this. that I'm like, oh, what a shame. I never, you know, I was never able to enjoy it earlier. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like technically there's quite a few things we could have put into this gap between Strength in Numbers and Justice for All because I think you also in this time get World Without Grown-Ups. That certainly fits into that period. Mm. JLA Titans, The Technus Imperative is another miniseries that fits into that period. (laughs) Um, I should really read that at some point. That feels like a gap in my education. It's... Not essential to the JLA side of things at all. It's more there to set up what was the new sort of Titans book that they were then going to start and put out. Um, it's fun, though. It's fun. But it's also where on my shelf a couple of the, the prestige format one-shots go, like Foreign Bodies and Primeval um, go between oh, of course, Strength yeah. in Numbers and Justice for All. Now, I feel like some of them came out concurrently with the issues published in Justice for All, but it's just based on when the graphic novel of that was released and everything, is just where all of these books go in my uh, in my JLA collection. It is, and it's funny you mentioned, like, um, those, well, if not crossovers, but, you know, um, interestingly, the same the same time and place in which I was introduced to this series uh, is where I read, the only time I've read uh, World Without Grown-Ups. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in my school library in, like, 98 99 2000 kind of time uh and it was incredible to me thinking back that uh, they not only had a couple of volumes of the jla series they had american dreams and new world order but they also had well, young justice world without grown-ups i'm like what a weird pull for like uh, a community school in newant in gloucestershire to have yeah that is really odd. random See, my, my copy of it is called JLA World Without Grown-Ups. Um, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. It wasn't part of Young Justice at that point. But I feel like that was only a couple of months before One Million because certainly I had Young Justice One Million and I think that came out after issue two of Young Justice. Mm. So Very strange. Very strange. Yeah. Um, but again, the thing that... And I think this is one of the weird barriers in terms of continuity sometimes, is that when you do get these crossovers, you know, like, um, conti- the DC continuity is hard enough to keep track of yeah. as it is. Like, it's often, I think, like a, like a drowning man grabbing a, <laughs> a life ring. Uh, I think um, the best thing you can do is to latch onto a story or a creative team you like, just take it for what it is and follow that arc and then find something else to try. Um 
But it's always weird when, say, you're following the pages of JLA and then another team pops up or there's some kind of crossover or something. Because then you, you are left wondering where that iteration of that team actually sits in the continuity. And then they might meet that team again a few issues later under a different creative a creative partnership only they haven't met because that team's been rebooted or something like off panel yeah god i'm reminded of um after the morrison run when i was collecting some of the later volumes um and there's an absolutely awful later story called the 10th circle which oh, is yeah. uh john byrne and it's like the introduction of the doom patrol yeah and it's and it's like Here's a brand new team you're going to love. It's Doom Patrol, and nobody's ever met these people before. And it's like, and it's also just a really just bad interpretation of the Doom Patrol because it's John Byrne. And like, but that doesn't make any continuity, any sense whatsoever. <laughs> any sense whatsoever. Because I think um, the Doom Patrol are very, very, very briefly referenced in the following volume as, an, as a known quantity, as something the JLA have encountered. Yeah, well, also you can't really have the Doom Patrol be something no one's encountered, but also have Beast Boy be a key part of the Teen Titans. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's very bizarre. Because I think if I were to read, because I've never read the Titans, I've never read any Titans books, and I think uh, to read the Technus Imperative would probably be like my first uh, introduction to them. And then I'd probably always, always use it as the benchmark for any other interpretation of the team. Well, the Technus Imperative is an interesting one because it happens in between teams. There were no Titans at that point. And I think it features every single character who's ever been a member of any version of the Titans. Oh, right. Okay. So, yeah, it's an it's a weird one. And... I think that was my first encounter with the Titans in any form. After that, I did go back and read some of the classic um, Marv Wolfman, George Perez, New Teen Titans. And then I read then some of the Titans books that came after it for a few years in when I was collecting DC Comics regularly then. Um, up to, I think I went up to the end of the Jeff Johns run, I was collecting uh, Teen Titans there. But that's largely also because they merged Young Justice with the Teen Titans at that point. That's what I was going to ask, actually, because in the 2000s, kind of early 2000s, I want to say, we got the soft reboot of the yeah. Teen Titans uh, with Michael Turner on art. Was that the Jeff Johns? I think so, yeah. Right, 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 right. Crying yeah. Hard. It's, it's and so hard to keep track of. Because they cancelled Young Justice and then just brought the Young Justice characters into the Teen Titans and had them... Basically, Young Justice were the... the younger characters and the sort of more classic Teen Titans characters, so Cyborg, Beast Boy, Nightwing, were like their mentors, and I didn't like it as much, but I kept up with it for a little while. I mean, good for you, PJ. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, it's those kind of working fans who keep a series going, even when it's not 100% clicking. Yeah. I collected Avengers for years, you know, long after I stopped really enjoying it. 
I'm to blame partially. Yeah, same. I I sort of said to myself at one point, I want to have a complete collection of Avengers, every issue they ever put out. And then I stopped enjoying Avengers and I was like, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> You're in, you, we're, basi- we're basically enabling at that point. We're, yeah. allowing, we're allowing the creative team to continue when we should probably just, just move on. Yeah. Um, speaking of moving on, PJ, um, should we should we dive in? Is there is there any more kind of context we need to we need to give? Do you think? I don't think so. I think that there's things we'll need to mention as we go along, but we'll we'll get to them when they're referenced. So we'll just go straight to the opening page where we have a lovely half page shot of Zauriel flying towards us while Plastic Man has turned himself into a car and is driving along behind him. Yeah, and um, you know, cementing this weird kind of um weird comedy uh, creative partnership between Zoriel and Plastic Man mm-hmm. like the most kind of unlikely pairing but they spend a lot of time together over the course of a series and can i just say i do love this image of plastic man as a car i think it's a lovely little design <laughs> yeah i've got to say i mean we'll we'll give a shout out to the creators in a moment but um i do love the way this artist uh, draws plastic man yeah he's he's got the the wackiness gown down right um but yeah, um, right off the bat, we're into some weird kind of timey-wimey stuff because this is a prologue and it is the third day of something we do not know. And uh, something terrible has happened. And so uh, Zoriel and Plastic Man are racing to the kind of uh, uh, the monitor womb as as we get some really nice captions that show, um, I guess, how Zoriel's weird kind of like angel brain kind Mm. of operates and how he has to tone it down to make himself appear human yeah we get reference to his overmind that uh jean briefly touched during the starro storyline that we finished last time and yeah talking about how he has to he's he's got the human personality that he has crafted to walk among mortals which is a little throwaway line that I like because it's another sort of explanation as to how why Zauriel's character sort of changed between appearances because he's trying to create a persona he can have on Earth and sort of working on it and going, well, maybe I'll change that and this and just maybe swapping things out. <laughs> <laughs> and again, a a small but well, arguably a needless but fun uh, expansion to the character mm. again it's not deep it's not massively clever but it's just one of those small things that Morrison often kind of peppers in to make a character just that little more interesting so yeah I like it thumbs up yeah me too I also will up my thumbs good work Morrison I think uh, I think they might have a career ahead of them PJ <laughs> But yeah, so Zariel says there's been an emergency transmission from Jean, and then he says, I'll have to let it through, I'll take the responsibility. So something's up, not quite sure what, and Zariel feels like he's he's gotten something wrong here. Um, and uh, Plastic Man is still just kind of cracking jokes, because he says, you know, um, you know, it's, it's chaos around here, it's always chaos around here, I love it. And he, he makes a nice little dig at Elongated Man. Where he says, uh, you know, I, I never knew why they always passed me over for the elongated kid. Nice guy, nice wife, but hey, somebody left the stable door open and his charisma just bolted, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it hurts because it's true, yeah. I think. Uh, but also we get that recurring thing where people constantly feel compelled to be honest around Zoriel. They just keep kind of like, I guess, confessing. Because he's an angel? 
Yeah, like Plastic Man says, well, why am I doing this? Are you, are you a priest? And Zariel just says, look, once an angel, always an angel. But you get this sense that Zariel doesn't have time for, for Plastic Man's... Well, for Plastic Man right now. Uh, he's yeah. got bigger things on his line. And he says he should have been at his post. He's got a bad feeling. And as they uh, walk into the monitor room, there is devastation on the screen in front of them in a place called Montevideo on a map near Argentina, below Uruguay. And it's basically on fire. Dead people, bodies everywhere. You can see Blue Beetle and Captain Marvel stood in the background. And in the foreground is John holding a smouldering corpse, saying over a million people all dead. This is our last message. John Jones out. And it's... It's a really incredible kind of double-page spread, to be honest. A massive credit to the art team, who we will be shouting out in just a moment. Um, but yeah, it 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 really conveys the weight and horror of it uh, incredibly, and uh, and also you know we we see kind of like Zoriel and Plastic Man's kind of like shocked expression, and I think um, it does kind of betray a depth of character to Plastic Man that's easy to overlook. Like you keep thinking, like he's constantly uh, irreverent and, and just making stupid jokes, but which he does—that's true. But he's as horrified as like Zario. Like you see that he does care, and this is like in- incredibly shocking. Yeah, he's got in on this double-page spread a speech bubble, which then has that when they occasionally make the font a couple of sizes smaller, just to convey how quietly someone's speaking, and he is just saying, "Holy God, you turn your back for a second. So even even Plastic Man, wisecracking Plastic Man, is caught off guard and affected by this. Yeah, and yeah, and and again, PJ, just just as a small thing, I'd I'd noticed Blue Beetle in the background, which is a which is like a weird little pool, but I'd never noticed the the figure of um, Captain Marvel in the background. I think it's Captain Marvel. It certainly looks like his cape. Yeah, there's, I can't really think of many different people it could be actually. But um, yeah, for some reason, uh, a different selection of heroes are on the scene than what we would normally expect. Hmm. That's because this isn't a JLA comic. This is just DC 1 million issue one. Speaking of, title is Riders on the Storm. And we get that here with the credits, which is Grant Morrison, writer Val Semix, penciler. I'm not 100% sure how you like pronounce C- Val's name. I said name. like C-Mex or something like that. I, but again, I'm sure both are wrong. Yeah. Uh, Prentice Rollins, Inker, Kenny Lopez, Letterer, Pat Garrahy, Colorist, Digital Chameleon, did the Seps, Tony Bedard is the assistant editor, and Dan Raspler is the editor. Yeah, so the stage is set, and as we turn the page, we suddenly jump back in time, and it is on the first day. Hmm... Yeah, so you've got a meeting of the League, most of them sat around the table, and the first thing to mention here is Wonder Woman's back. It's Diana. She's back. Absolutely no fanfare. She's just back. And I think that's one of the disadvantages of a book like this, to be honest, is where all of a sudden her mum's gone and she's just there. And it'll get mentioned a couple of times briefly, but that's about it. That's all you get. Yeah... There's really no time to dwell on it, but again, it's just like, hey, um, remember how you were dead? But I guess, like, Superman was a little luckier in that we got a moment to appreciate that he was no longer electric blue. But, uh, 
but yeah, um, Diana's back and it's business as usual. Um, now here's a, here's a weird thing, PJ. And you may have to jog my memory in case I'm 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 being a bit daft here. Superman is addressing a meeting of the JLA, and we join in mid conversation as he says they appeared without warning from, and I know this takes some getting used to, the eight hundred and fifty third century, and then in my book it goes asterisk, see JLA issue twenty three. Now, we covered that on the last issue of the podcast. Yeah, my guess is, just like with um, the final issue in the American Dreams trade, they cut a page or two. Because if you remember, when the Rock of Ages prologue that we looked at Mm. was actually from that last issue from American Dreams, they just moved it in the trade. So my guess is, in the Strength in Numbers trade, they just cut the page or pages that Superman is referring to here and because they weren't relevant to Justice for All they didn't get reprinted there and they also didn't bother reprinting them here so they weren't in any of the trades which is very strange because it, but I guess of course it ties into the fact that if you know whoever was responsible for editing uh, and assembling the collected trades obviously DC 1 million isn't numbered you know it's not part of of, of the trade so obviously you'd want to jump straight from the conclusion to the Scaro storyline to the start of the next book and of course it wouldn't make any sense I suppose yeah but then again why not just conclude DC 1 million in the continuity I, I don't I don't know so yeah sadly we've lost uh, we may have lost a couple of Morrison pages which you know I guess we could only get hold of if we can track down the the the, the original floppies I mean it'll be on comicsology but <laughs> The question is how 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 compelled do we feel to to go find those pages? Yeah, I think you know there's no point now. We've gone this far forward, and we can imagine what those pages are. Yeah, I, I God, I still might go and find them. <laughs> but hey, that, but that's a story for another day. Um, anyway, yeah. So, um, good news, everyone. It's for JLA. Diana's back from the dead, and we've just been visited by our descendants from the eight hundred and fifty third century. Because we're the JLA, and this is our life. This is our lives. I can't speak. Save me, PJ. So Flash says, well, look, we've all done some time traveling, but I've never been beyond the 64th century. That's the furthest in the future I've gone. But Flash does know the 853rd century Flash, who's come back in time with them, John Fox. He's met him before and can vouch for him. And security is a concern as well that's raised by Steel. He says, look, these guys just got here they just arrived on the watchtower and i feel like we need a security system in place because this keeps happening yeah and uh it's interesting that we get to see the more kind of um down to earth earth sorry pj i can't speak this morning the more grounded superheroes such as steel plastic man and huntress are reacting in a very different way to the others like the more kind of like um uh soaring high above above um, the stratosphere kind of superheroes because uh, um, Plastic Man's cracking jokes, Steel is worried about security, and Huntress is basically going like, I can't believe we, we actually survived that long, and like superheroes haven't just wiped each other out by I'm then. kind of with Huntress on this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I love superheroes, but we do have a tendency to like just fight mindlessly. We get a nice little uh, continuity reference as Zauriel says, well, are we sure they're not imposters like those Martians you fought? And come on, 
what are the chances of the JLA being essentially identical and still existing hundreds of centuries in the future? I mean, it's a fair point. Um, Kyle, however, being a nice kind of trusting guy, is like, yeah, you know, give him a chance. I want to, I want to hear what the future's like. Um, although I, I do feel like Kyle should maybe be a little warier. What is wrong with me? A little more wary, given that he did live through the White Martian attack. Um, and Bard is like, um, yeah, time travel kind of sucks, and Metron is probably meddling in this. So, yeah. We, we, we've all had some experience with time travel, but to varying degrees. It is, it is as you say, a bit weird to me that it's the, the newer members who are like, can, I don't know if we can trust them, but, you know, in recent weeks they've had Prometheus and Catwoman and the Sandman just break into the watchtower. So, <laughs> Again, I guess it just speaks to the inherent optimism of, of the heroes. You yeah. know, like I imagine Superman just relentlessly finding the good in people, and Kyle would probably be inspired by that. Yeah, that is very true. That's very true. And but- Wally, as we've said, Wally is just like a career superhero. So, like, he's just this is just so par the course for him. He's like, yeah, they're probably on the level. You know, I've, I've done crossovers. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to the future. My future self came back to the past for a bit. It's all cool. Everyone's fine. <laughs> But then we, we turn the page and we get our first good look at Justice Legion A, the JLA of the 853rd century. And um, there's some familiar figures and then a few slightly less familiar figures in there. And also, can I just very quickly say, this is such a Morrison concept. Because again, it's either brilliant or stupid or a combination of both. Or yes. it's so stupid it comes around to being brilliant again. The fact that they are the JLA, but... Dax gangs for something different. It's the same. It's the same thing that led to um, at the end of All Star Superman, Morrison going like, "What if we took the S logo but put a two instead of an S because they kind of look the same?" And everyone goes, "That's so obvious. Why has no one else done it?" Therefore, it's brilliant. <laughs> and also in New X Men, when Morrison was like, "If you rotate the X by like forty five degrees, it looks like a plus symbol." So we're gonna have a group called Weapon Plus in it. Oh, and how Weapon X was Weapon 10. Yes, 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 exactly. Yes, that's a much better example, PJ. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually might be my favourite example of when Morrison's done that. Yeah, I love I, actually, that. Oh my God, that makes total that is, sense. That is su- a, such a better example. I'm kind of embarrassed that I brought up mine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but PJ, sorry, who are the Justice Legion A? So looking left to right, we have a guy in a black cape and like a black onesie but there are stars on the underside of his cape and what looks like a sun sort of just burning there on his chest and a weird red helmet and some kind of red fork gun this is Starman although you would have no way of knowing no until, 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 he's, until he's later introduced next to him is Superman slightly different costume but obviously Superman he's got the face, the hair uh, this is the one who has the three ovals on his chest where you sort of draw an s around them and that's where you get the s on there i can and i i just have to assume that that is a fundamental morrison design choice right there i I can imagine morrison just going look this is how if you drew an s relentlessly for 800 centuries like it would eventually devolve into this yeah pretty much 
But I, I really like, actually, I think uh, Superman of 853rd Century is probably my favourite design of the Justice Legion A. Mm. Then we have Our Man, who we have seen before. An old friend. Yep, turned up in Rock of Ages. Then some kind of weird cyborg Wonder Woman thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, ob- objectively Wonder Woman, but appears to have like blank eyes and is made of uh, possibly stone, some kind of like white crystalline structure. Yep. Uh, next to her is Batman. And, you know, it's a guy in a bat cape and cowl, but the mask covers his whole face. It's a very kind of like gnarly 90s version of Batman, yes. I would say. It's yeah, what there's I would something very Azrael about it, actually, isn't there? Yeah, it's uh, it's very much every teenage superhero I created, basically. <laughs> uh, then we have John Fox, the Flash, who sort of a half yellow and red costume with a lightning shape down the middle of it to split between the colours and weird yellow triangles that just float around him. Which, again, makes me think, that's so out there, it's probably a Morrison thing. I don't know, because John Fox has appeared before. Yes, but he didn't wear this costume. Oh, okay. I haven't read his earlier appearances. I didn't know that. I only I only know his previous costume on account of the uh, DC Encyclopedia. Ah. But it, it, it was more kind of red all over. And... Um, yeah, I think uh, he got a clearly got a redesign of his costume after he joined for Justice Legion A. And then we have uh, Aquaman, who has a big old anchor sword and green skin, and his hair is made of water. Yeah, and hello everyone, welcome. And right off the bat, I would just say that I love how... You could have gone two ways. You could have had every member of the Justice Legion be a direct counterpart to the original Magnificent Seven. Or you could have gone the other way and had seven completely different characters. I like how Morrison chose to go a little bit of both. It feels weird and yet oddly makes sense at the same time that just for whatever reason we have Our Man and Starman on the team. Yeah. And... So many of the DC heroes are quite kind of like um, iconic or in their own way. They're often like um, an, an avatar of something. And even though I know, say, the Starman brand or the Hourman brand are more closely associated with the JSA. Yes. I've often felt that because their names are so kind of evocative, so, you know, they're so representative of a single thing that they could easily have been on the Justice League and and be kind of elevated, I suppose. Wasn't, I'm sure in the 90s, the version of Starman that was floating around in the DCU did join the League? Was that when he... Oh, God, this is so annoying because I can't remember the character's name. Is it Knight? Ted Knight? I can't remember either. I mostly remember him for, um, there was a Superman story, I think in the early 90s, where he lost his powers and this Starman could shapeshift somehow as well. And he replaced Clark as Superman for a little bit so that no one would know Superman was depowered. Honestly, if you want a confusing backstory, look up Starman. (laughs) Because there have been like nine different iterations of Starman and counting, I think. And it... I know, like, Earth now has, like, 78 Green Lanterns or something like that, but at least the Green Lantern 
power structure is simple enough in that they get a ring, they become a Green Lantern. It's not the same with Starman. Like, some have been aliens, some have been, I don't know, from the future, some have had a particular weapon, some have had a different weapon. The only continuity seems to be that they have all just bore the name Starman. Yeah. Yeah, it's... The Starman lineage is weird, and I I don't think I have the energy to drill down into it today. <laughs> <laughs> but no, sorry, I, I, I like his look, though. I like this particular version of Scarman. He he looks intriguing. Yes. I, I love his cape, um, The how the underside is just a starry sky, um, which you, I, I imagine actually moves as well. Like, you can see the stars twinkling, and, and the sun on his chest, I imagine, actually burning and... Oh. It would look great in CGI, basically. Yes. Uh, but PJ, they uh, what are they up to? The the Justice Legion A. They're being scanned by the Justice League of America. Uh, they're doing DNA scans. Jean's doing telepathic scans. Kyle's saying, "Hey, I met our man once." <laughs> yeah, and and Kyle's there. <laughs> <laughs> It's a nice little throwaway line where Zoriel goes like, hey, some of you with enhanced senses may be able to see uh, on your own what we're currently doing with computers, which I think is like quite a fun a fun little throwaway line, yeah. basically. Yeah. And then they specifically say, oh, just last question for your Flash. Uh, we thought you came from the 27th century. And he's like, well, yeah, I did. But then I went to the future and I stayed. Come on, guys. Keep up. I ended up in 85,265 AD. I've been serving with the Justice Legion for five years. I mean, he's a flash. Like, they do this kind of crap all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Kyle creates his big floating head in front of the Legion and says, yeah, sorry about that. We've we've had, you know, Prometheus, Catwoman, and the Sandman all break in recently, so... Um. Yeah, so, uh, and apparently um, uh, John Fox, uh, the Flash of the future, being, uh, well, also a double time traveller, because he's had experience of living in a different time period to his own, and also being a Flash, who are just generally the friendliest people on the planet, is like, look, I'll, I'll, I'll take the lead for the time being until everyone has had a chance to let their telepathic translators adjust so we can all communicate which is fun. Yeah, and, but then he says, and then our man here will take over, at which point our man holds up his hand and presents the Whirlagog and just time-splains to everyone. <laughs> and I guess for the benefit of anyone who hasn't read Rock of Ages, I suppose. where or criminally we... not listened to our episodes about Rock of Ages. I know, what the hell's wrong with you? For shame. You monsters. Um, although, of course, it's weird that we have that weird, like, asterisk throwing back to... Uh, JLA issue twenty three. When we de- we have very 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 briefly seen future Superman at the end of Rock of Ages. Yes. When, yeah. Yeah. Where so it's all been in the works. It's all, Morrison's been kind of planning it for a while. Yeah, I think one of the epilogues to Rock of Ages is Superman and the other shadowy figures of Justice Legion A saying to Arrow Man, "Well, let's prepare for deep time travel." I do like that. I like the idea that like it's like going in a submarine. Like going like a day into the past is, is is easier, but like if you're going several hundred centuries, I don't know, you have to pack a lunch or something. <laughs> but yeah, our man explains, you know, the Whirlagog is a time-spanning engine bequeathed to me by my teacher, Metron of the New Gods, and then Bard is like, Metron, I knew it, I bloody knew it. 
and uh, Plastic Man just, uh, you know, is winding up everyone, which is what he does. And um, Steel rightly points out that if the new gogs are involved, we may need Orion, like his firepower could be vital. And it is a bit of a recurring thing here that while uh, Barda and Orion have both technically been assigned to Earth, Orion isn't around very often. They keep on having to pop back to New Genesis for various reasons, don't they? Hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Did he? Did he have like his own ongoing title at the time? Uh, there was an Orion book, but I can't remember if it started just after the Morrison run ended, or if it started concurrently with. Yeah, I don't know. Just just found it interesting whether Morrison just you know decided to keep Orion as a kind of like more distant presence, or whether. Mm. I don't know whether he was needed in other books. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so um, we're getting a lot of exposition, for lack of a, a better word. But um, it's kind of fun because it's like, uh, I think you're kind of put in the same perspective as the JLA, where you're just getting overwhelmed with information. Yeah. Because Star- Starman just basically goes, hey, so by the way, in the future, the entire solar system has been colonized. And each of us in the Justice Legion is in control of our own planet, which is fun. And uh, Flash is like, yeah, of course, I live on Mercury, eh? Because of because of Mercury, you know, the god, right? And um, Starman has the honour of living not exactly on Uranus, because Uranus is apparently gone, but he has a um, a space station, like a kind of floating citadel there, shaped like a star, where he oversees the solar system's new second sun, which, if this isn't too much to take in, is a super intelligent stellar computer called Solaris, basically, which uh, I'm assuming is there because it allows... Um, it generates sunlight for the further planets and makes colonization popular. That was my kind of reading yeah it. mine too and solaris used to be uh one of the greatest foes of the superman dynasty but the 505th century superman died reversing his programming and now solaris is nice <laughs> yeah and uh, solaris has a very particular design where it's like a big flaming sphere because it's, it's a sun covered in spikes with a kind of central I, for lack of a better word, kind of like recessed into it. And yeah, it is both a sun, it is both a kind of back massaging tool <laughs> and a kind of malevolent machine looking thing. So yeah, it's, there's a lot going on there with Solaris. Yeah, and this is where our man says, and look, this is why we're here now. In the year 70,001... <laughs> The Prime Superman returned from adventures on the rim of time and space and took up residence in his solar fortress of solitude, our sun. Yes. And our Superman is like, wait, what? What? what is he talking about? This is confusing. And, you know, Jean, who's pretty, you know, quick on the uptake, is like, okay, so your future time somehow mirrors our time here but not all of us have counterparts so and yeah like a future flash and superman are like well yeah nobody really knows what happened to you um uh, but superman is like you know hey look flash you're meant to be quick just get to the point and he basically says 
The prime Superman is coming back. After 100 centuries in the core of the sun, Kal-El of Krypton is returning to Earth. That's why we're here. And I love this next panel. It's a huge close-up on our Superman's face, just shocked to his core. <laughs> he just says, start again. I'm alive in 85-271 AD in the sun. I think that's a fair reaction. And there you go, everyone. That's the setup. That's that, that, that's what they were getting getting to. Superman, who we know and love, is yeah, is still alive a million issues from now in the future. Because <laughs> and he's lives Superman in the sun, and lives in the sun. Um, so from this kind of like earth-shattering, cosmic time travel weird stuff, we cut to the nighttime streets of gotham uh where um uh, uh nightwing is out on his regular patrol basically yeah he's in communications with oracle uh, who's also keeping up with the news stories and nightwing asks her well is there anything i should be aware of going on and she says well an aeroplane has turned radar invisible over turkish airspace and we know arsenal's using oliver queen's stuff now ollie's dead and Nightwing just comes out and says, yeah, he's trying to get the Titans going again. I think he's going to mess this up. Let me know if he turns up. I'm going to go stop a mugger. And can I just say, there's a very, very, like a blinking, you miss it kind of throwaway radio report coming in that just says, tensions rise at Bell Reeve Prison. Hmm. Hmm. Just file that away. Uh, but yeah, so um, from that little segue, we cut to another weird little segue where we are now in Opal City, which I'm sure each of you know is the uh, spiritual home of the original Starman, basically. And um, yeah, we uh, we see uh, Starman, who is now an elderly fellow, because in the weird sliding timeline of the DC uh, universe, uh, he would have been active during World War Two, so now he's he's obviously getting on in years. And uh yeah, he's on the phone with Jay, who is um help me out, PJ, which um Golden Age Flash, Jay Garrick. Golden Age Flash, Jay Garrick, there we go, yes. And they're just comparing notes over the phone, having a chat. Yeah, basically watching the news where you can see members of Justice Legion A, and he's like, There's a there's a star man. There's a star man hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years into the future and you know we dreamed that everything could be better and it's happened and we know it's happened look at this this is great and this is confirmed sorry this is confirmed i think this is i'm gonna get this wrong probably but i think this is ted knight who is the original Scarman, because he makes reference to jack knight who is the current Starman of the 90s. Oh, yeah. Well, the late 90s, yeah. Whose costume was like a leather jacket and goggles, wasn't it? And he just had the staff. And Yes. Yes. He basically, uh, I think, drawn by, I want to say, Terry Dogson, I think. I can't remember. I can't remember who the writer was. But yeah, had a very a very 90s, but not necessarily in a bad way kind of take on the character, like a deconstructed superhero. I do where... remember now, you've, now we've brought him up, actually, for a, a couple of months, DC were pushing him hard. He was everywhere, 90s. wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Because again, it was quite a striking look. It was very like 
he's wearing civilian clothes but has goggles and carries the the scar rod uh which is the source of the scarman powers um which has taken many different shapes over the years and i yeah. think when he when he wielded it it was like a long kind of staff basically yes. yeah which i want to say cuz also in the jsa greater family you've got star spangled girl yeah and i believe I think Jack Knight eventually died and he gave the Star Rod to Star Spangled Girl. Yeah, and then she just became Star Girl. Yeah, kind of like merging the two franchises in a way. Yeah, because didn't, didn't she start in the book Stars and Stripe? Yes. Where yes, indeed. She, th- she was Stars were... and Stripe was her stepdad in a giant robot costume. <laughs> yeah, because in the very, very, very early superheroes, Star... It was like they were called Scar and Stripe or Scarry and Stripe or something like that or Scar Boy. And it was basically like from the good old days of like the 1940s, it was like just two guys in like gaudy kind of one had a striped costume, one had a a scar covered costume, and they just went and punched Nazis. Yeah. And then to update that for the present day, it was Scar Spangled Girl and Stripe, as in S T R I P E acronym guy in a robot suit yeah cannot remember what they made it stand for but <laughs> i mean yeah it's a long journey to get to star girl but there we go it's all cool um so yeah so um we cut back to the jla watchtower where there is still just kind of um a conversation going on between the two teams as they just talk about the logistics of what they're planning basically yeah, so I think Superman is naturally going, I don't really know how to feel about this. You want me to travel to the future to celebrate myself? This is weird. And John Fox, Future Flash, basically says, look, this is you're honoured on, on countless worlds. All those worlds, the representatives of them are making their way to our system to pay tribute. Denizens of the Fifth Dimension, Supermen and Superwomen from a dozen eras... And we want you, the Prime Superman's oldest heroic comrades, to represent his glorious past. Why didn't they travel to JLA Year One and recruit the original JLA if they want Superman's <laughs> oldest comrades? Just saying. Be- because nobody really remembers or thinks about that team. <laughs> How dare you? I'm so sorry, PJ. Even DC don't think about that anymore. They've retconned it so many times. I don't think DC think anymore. That's... <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Oh, PJ, we're never going to get that sponsorship deal now. <laughs> you spoke the truth. Which is what never Steel speak. does now. Yeah. He's like, look, um, we have a bit of an issue in that we often attract trouble. So what if something goes wrong? And this seems to annoy John Fox, who's like, oh, what if hats were ants? Uh, is that a Dr. Seuss thing? I think so. Yeah. So apparently Dr. Seuss survived into the... The year 85,000 or whatever. Well, no, he only had to survive to the 27th century, didn't he, for John Oh, uh, of course. And then the Seuss Wars, you know, <laughs> kind of wiped out. <laughs> um, but yeah, so basically he's like, well, what, what, what's the problem? This is time travel. Like, you can go, you could have a great big adventure in the future, it'd be fine, and then we drop you back here like a second later. Like, no time would be lost, everything's fine, nothing could possibly go wrong at all. And everyone has a lovely time. The end. Close the book. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, so basically it's like we want you to go to the future and perform in a series of superpowered like feats. And the team are like just going, well, okay, this is kind of like a bit different and maybe we shouldn't because we should just be like fighting bad guys. But also like, like why not? Like maybe it would be nice to do something which isn't just like end of the world every day. Wonder Woman's like, you know, I've often... Thought we should hold like Olympic Games for superhumans, so this is a bit like that, really. I do like that idea. I love how pumped up Aquaman is for this. He's like, so challenges? Yeah, I can do challenges. And how how much Aquaman is now enjoying being a member of the league? Yeah, I guess. I guess also he likes kind of this would play right into his personality, I suppose, yeah. like the kingly kind of stuff. And like Flash and Wally are like, oh come on, yeah, we gotta go. I mean. You know, I'm a superhero, and going to the future, you've got to do it once, right? And um, Jean, Jean is like, look, I don't want to go to the future. You know, I already know I'm not alive in that time, so it's just certain things I'd rather not know. And Plastic Man's like, yeah, and I better stay here and be and be the responsible adult and look after everyone. <laughs> so yeah, five members of the league have decided they're going to the future, and uh, and now it's day two. Remember? Remember that? We're, we're on to day two. Mm. And uh, Batman and Huntress are running. And it's our Batman, who we haven't seen in the book yet. Oh, that's true, actually, yes. I imagine he had better things to do. Usually does. Usually does. Like work on his incredibly square chest. <laughs> <laughs> but Huntress is saying, look, you haven't agreed to go with the rest of them, right? I mean, also... This is really overwhelming. This is baffling to me. Why am I on the league? And Batman basically just says, you're here to replace Green Arrow. I mean, Batman's being a little bit of a dick, but of yeah. course, it's all part of his teaching method. He He's trying to, you know, it's tough love. He wants her to learn something. Um, but he also makes a fair point from Huntress because she's smart and she kind of realises that Batman is, if not manipulating her, he's at least using her for some purpose even if it's just to teach her something yeah like but he's not he's not being entirely honest with her basically as to why he's doing this to her i suppose yeah and she calls him out on it she says look i don't understand why you nominated me why didn't you go with nightwing you know you hate me you hate my methods you're always telling me you hate my methods <laughs> and batman just says look this is the world we live in yeah, it's a fun thing. It's like he's almost trying to give her a life lesson here. It's like, look, you know, if you're going to be uh, a superhero or at least a vigilante in this world, you're going to have to deal with this weird crap. Like, this is our world. I can't just beat up muggers. I have to occasionally deal with, like, a sentient virus or something like that. And so you need the practice, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and she does say, well... That's not an answer, and I don't believe you're prepared to trust. They've just turned up and said they're from the future, and you're trusting them. And Batman does say, well, we can't automatically assume everyone's an enemy. Which, again, is a is a, is a a more optimistic stance that I, from Batman. I, yeah. I think um, under many writers, I would say that that's exactly what Batman would do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um... But yeah, so Batman descends, I'm guessing, the Batcave? Is this the Batcave, Yeah. 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 
A bat cave. A bat cave. Maybe he's got a few. Um, and yeah, and he is greeted by the Batman of the future, and but not not that Batman of the future. <laughs> no, no, not not so, Batman Beyond. Sadly, not Terry McGuinness. And more's uh, the pity. A different Batman, and um, yeah, they, uh, you know, Batman is not the one to go. Why? What the hell are you doing here? That's not Batman style. And here we have two Batmen having a conversation. So they just go straight into it. And he's like, I guess Batman's a little disappointed that the future would still need a Batman. I think he kind of hoped that they'd eventually help Gotham, as it were. Yeah, but future Batman says, well, I have no idea. Gotham apparently was a paradise, but then it disappeared from the historical records. And I live somewhere a bit more intense. Hey, you go into the future? Uh, And he's like, no. No, I don't need to know how what happens in the future. I'd rather just kind of, you know, keep the present safe. And he tries to have like a nice little kind of um, personal moment with Batman of the future where he goes, why did you choose the bat? Which I think is quite an interesting line because he's making an assumption there that anybody who would be driven to be a Batman, it's not just like a, hey, I'm Batman. There has to be some kind of like deep motivation for why you would take up that standard, I suppose. I feel like it's a combination of of there is an element of of trying to bond with it, but also this is Batman the detective trying to figure out who this other Batman is. And then we get this gloriously weird um, panel where Batman of the Future simultaneously kicks Batman in the chest and blasts him in the face with some kind of like purple ray. And delivers possibly like the longest speech bubble you would ever imagine would work in a comic. And just when you think that like, oh yeah, classic comics where characters, you know, are, you know, they speak an essay in one panel. um, You realise that that, that's actually the point. Because Morrison is basically, future Batman is using a telepathic attack. uh, Which was developed by apparently an octopus species on the info oceans of Durla. And by the time you realise this sentence seems way too long and that Huntress was right, it'll all be over. And Batman collapses to the floor. Yeah, so future Batman says that our Batman has to go to the future. And then he uses a device to suck out his spirit and contain it in a little tube thing. (laughs) Yes. If that seems like a lot to take in, it's because it is a lot to take in. Yep. A lot has happened in a <laughs> in a very short span of time. And uh, now we just leave the Batman, and we find we're in Steel's workshop on the Watchtower. Yeah, and Steel is again hammering away on what I can only imagine is an astonishingly sophisticated and delicate piece of highly advanced technological armor. And he's hitting it with a hammer. Um, because that's how Steel makes things. Um and yeah, and he's joined by Wonder Woman, and we we get uh, a I don't know, a nice interaction between two characters that would probably never interact otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, and Wonder Woman tells us a bit about future Wonder Woman that the Amazons of Themyscira colonized Venus in the eight hundredth century. Uh and that's where she's gonna be going. 
in the future. And Steel mentions that Aquaman has said that there are coral cities and underwater pirate kingdoms on Neptune, and that means that's the one I want to go to. <laughs> um, and Wonder Woman is absolutely loving this. Yeah, she's like, she's like, look, this is cool. You yeah. know, I, I'm optimistic that these people are on the level. This is going to be fun. It's, yeah, she's just being very welcoming and giving them the benefit of the doubt. And just, you know, she's like, this is cool. I'm happy. It's nice. This is, I'm looking forward to it. But while I'm here, and um, again, just one of those weird little quirks of Wonder Woman's backstory, um, she has an invisible plane. <laughs> Yeah, she asks Steel to take a look at it for her, and he says, well, I didn't even know you had a plane. And she just pulls this little translucent lump out, throws it into the air, and it turns into her plane. <laughs> yes, uh, which it's been joked about many times in the past, but Wonder Woman owns an invisible plane. However, when she is in it, she is not invisible. No. No. Um now, of course, I've often wondered about this because Wonder Woman uh, can do many things, but in the comics, at least, for a long, well, for a long time, at least, she could fly. Flying was quite a big deal of, like, Wonder Woman. Um, but I guess sometimes she wants a rest. Yeah, I think the invisible plane does date back to a time before she could fly in the comics as well. I yeah. I can't remember when that power was introduced for her, but certainly I think the invisible plane was like a 50s or 60s introduction. I mean, I kind of like the sheer weirdness of it, where yeah. it's like, it's like, hey, look, I, you know, I can fly, but um, I just happen to have like a plane, um, which I guess I picked up once, and there's no point. It's like D and D; you pick up a nice artifact, you're not gonna like throw it away. <laughs> um, and she's like, could you have a look at it? Um, and uh, Skeel is like, wow, like it's it's beautiful, like it, it's really it's it's. But it's way beyond me. I'll need time to study it. Um, do you have five minutes? Because he's a smart man, PJ. Yep. Yep. And this, then, we now get the only reference we're going to get to Diana having come back from the dead and her mother having left in this book. As Steele says, oh, I liked your mother, by the way. I didn't realise she wasn't you for the first month <laughs> after I joined. But is it good <laughs> to be back? And I wonder if that is Morrison sort of saying, yeah, we didn't really write Hippolyta as anything other than Diana. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Diana's back now. <laughs> you know, scene missing. Let's continue. Uh, and uh, yeah, and uh, Diana kind of has like a wistful look on her face and goes, well, look, I died and became a goddess. I was eternal. I walked among the gods of Olympus. Then I returned to life and here I am. Still walking among gogs, it seems. So yeah, nice touch. It is a nice little scene, and I like that it's giving us more steel as well. And I know this this feels to me maybe like the moment when Morrison realised what Steel was actually doing on the team. Yeah, it's like you can see the kind of love affair with Steel kind of beginning. Yeah, because and I think as we're going to see in this story, Steel gets a lot to do in. DC 1 million or JLA 1 million. Yes. And um, I I mean, said it before, say it again. I love Steel. I think he is quintessential JLA and I think should be in every interpretation of, of JLA. I just think he's fantastic. Yep. I agree. 100%. Uh, but PJ, what's, uh, what's happening? What's the next? Well, we cut to Mount Rushmore, which is where the Justice League are going to be traveling to the future from. 
basically because it's a nice place for the press to view it. And Kyle and Starman are flying together. And Kyle basically says, well, look, you should go speak to the Starman in Opal City because I think that would be cool. I don't know if you're related, but great. And Starman says, yeah, I think I might. And then Kyle says, okay, so there's no Green Lantern on Justice Legion A? What did I do wrong? And Starman just says, look, the ring vanished long before my time. Nobody knows what happened. That's such a Kyle way of reacting as well. Like, it's not what happened. It's like, ah, I guess I screwed up somehow. Yeah, pretty much. Poor Kyle. (laughs) Um, And, uh, yeah, and also we get a nice little throwback to the fact that... um, uh, Oh, contrast this scene with the scene in New World Order. Yep. When Wally and Kyle team up, and Wally, of course, beats him there, and then is complaining about him being late. And if you want to see how far these two have come as uh, kind of friends and as characters, it's perfectly ex- exemplified here. Yeah, yeah. Because in that in that one, Wally was looking at his watch and grumbled that Kyle was late, and. Kyle has mentioned that Flash will get there first and look at his watch. And Wally does indeed say, hey, you're late. And Starman says, no, we're precisely on time. Your watch is probably experiencing the relativistic effects of ultra-velocity travel. (laughs) And Kyle just says, Wally, this guy has his own spaceship. And he's like, and Wally's not very impressed, but Kyle's like, no, really. You'd be surprised just how much responsibility those things are. I've been hearing about it for like the last hour. (laughs) Which is kind of fun. Yeah, and then Wally asks Starman how he's been enjoying the 20th century, and Starman says, well, the air is rotten, the gravity rod is registering toxic levels of background radiation and viral pollution, and everything seems so squeezed together. When do you get Tesseract technology? (laughs) Wally's like, I don't know, try again in a thousand years? Um, And again, it's not really explained, but I just, I like the fact, I don't know, I like it at this point that we just see Starman kind of like, waving his gravity rod, as he calls it, around. And I just like the fact that, like, you really have no idea what it does. He can apparently fly. That's basically, like, all we've seen so far. But it's just like a weird... It looks like a a weird egg whisk. Kind of weird, kind of pointy thing. I'm intrigued, PJ. This has piqued (laughs) my interest. And then Kyle creates himself a lovely porch swing, just has a seat, and says, so uh, which challenge am I doing? And Starman says, you're going to do the challenge in my citadel in orbit of Uranus. And Flash laughs, because that joke had to get in there somewhere. I mean, it's still very funny. Yes. <laughs> well, that's it. Kyle says, Wally, grow up. Uranus stops being a funny word after you're 12. And Wally says, well, you try saying it. Um, Yeah, and then, um, you know, a Flash of the Future is like, uh, guys, let's focus. Uh, and we see... Um, uh, the the press uh, approaching by helicopter because we're standing on the top of Mount Rushmore. We see the two, well, I was going to say the two Wonder Womans, or I guess the kind of Wonder Women kind of approaching. And he's like, look, it's almost time. It's almost time to go to the future. And it's going to be wonderful. Everything's going to be great. And we cut to the Supermen, who the are... Super, the Supermans. Super, super's man. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Got it. <laughs> Who are, you know, dealing with problems. Yeah, uh, there's a big, uh, I guess, kind of prison break, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, as in literally like a wall of the prison appears to have been like torn open. And um, this is really like a kind of 
you know, this is like a light workout for the Superman. This is not like a kind of big challenge. So they're just having a, just having a little chat while they're going. And um, we learned that, uh, was it uh, faster than a speeding bullet? Um, More powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. There we go. Thank you, PJ. As um, we learned that future Superman is faster than a speeding tachyon, more powerful than the gravitational pull of a collapsing star, able to leap from world to world in a single bound. That's what they say about me. But only under his own son. Otherwise, he starts losing his powers. And our Superman goes, well, we all have our weaknesses. (laughs) And he goes, look, please, you have to understand, this is all quite astonishing for me. And uh, future Superman is... Now, this is interesting. Future Superman goes, You have to understand, in my era, meetings like these are commonplace. Just two days ago, I fought the Chronovore with the Superman squad. Supermen from various eras who've banded together to defend the time stream. Now, mm. who here has read All-Star Superman? <laughs> Which was published later. Yep. So, of course, we... I I don't know what Morrison had planned, but, I don't know, at the very least, kind of um, just having that as a dangling thread that you could pick up kind of later, that is kind of cool. It's all part of Morrison's long-term plan for his... uh, Sorry, their Superman magnum opus. Now, of course, it doesn't make a lick of sense when you consider DC continuity, but no. if you just follow the things that Morrison has written, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. But All-Star Superman ran from 2006 to 2008, so Morrison wouldn't pick that up again until, like, another nine years, That's maybe. That's crazy. They had to do all of their X-Men run first. Yeah, that's commitment, you know. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure when when they did join X Men, weren't they Marvel exclusive for a little bit when when they were doing X Men? Yeah, that was like was that not like 2001 to like 2004, something I like say, that. that yeah. Ran. yeah, and I know it didn't end on like the best kind of term. So I think Morrison was probably keen to get out after that. Yeah. I need to I need to properly patch up my Morrison continuity. Like I I'm curious to work out what came out between 2004 so between end of New X-Men and start of All-Star Superman. There would have been some stuff in that period. I feel like there might have been a couple of Vertigo things in mm. that period. I don't think they've gone back to Marvel since New X-Men though, have they? No. No, they wouldn't have done because I know um I know Morrison did um that Marvel Knights book with Jay Lee, um, Fantastic Four, one, two, three, four. Yes. Which is a weird little story, but I think that was earlier. I want to say that was like a... Oh, and um, Marvel Boy, which is also a Marvel Knights title. I think they were both they were both earlier books before Morrison got like a big meaty series like New X-Men. I want to say Marvel Boy was done during their JLA run. That would probably make sense, actually. I should... This wouldn't be hard to work out, actually. This isn't like a grand mystery. This is like, if I do a bit of research, I could learn. But, yeah, I'd be fascinated now to kind of properly put everything in terms of a timeline. Hmm. That's your homework, anyway, John. That's my homework. Something for another day, sorry. Um, But, yeah, PJ, what's... Uh, sorry, when, you know, this weird story that won't be written for nine years, when we're done referencing that, 
What, sorry, what's going on here? Superman of the future is rubbing his hands together to create an electrical storm cloud, which will then rain on the prison. And he uses his <laughs> super ESP to use the raindrops to hypnotize them. And then our Superman says, sorry, super ESP? What? Yeah, like, if that is meant to be confusing... Yeah, Superman feels the same way. Like he's like, uh, okay, that's that's weird. Like that's cool, but weird. I mean, I mean, I have like super cold breath, which is not a common superhero power, but this is weird. Okay, but good for you. Thank you. The Superman of the future says, "Oh yeah, like ten completely new senses entered our bloodline when the Superman of the sixty seventh century married Gazintplzk, the <laughs> queen of the fifth dimension." And future Superman is again going, look, okay, it's all, all my power comes from the Super Sun, which is the living solar fortress of the Prime Superman, which is you. He's what you become at the other end of time. You'll see. And Superman's like, I'm not sure I want to hear anymore. <laughs> you know? I don't want to know what my future is. And then future Superman says, I'll meet you on the mountain with the faces, and then proves he's a fanboy, because he then goes, up, up and away. So he's not just the Superman of the future, he's also a Superman fan. And from there, just because you might have thought, well, there couldn't possibly be any more to process or take in, um, we cut to a completely different scene. Uh, we are somewhere in northern Mongolia on a kind of snowy, frigid kind of plat plateau, plain sort of thing, where... We are watching some kind of arms deal go down from the perspective of a few uh, kind of C-list superheroes who are There's up on a ridge. Titans, aren't they? It's Arsenal and Tempest, the former sidekicks of Green Arrow and Aquaman. And uh, they're yeah. saying that we're looking at this, XKGB, Supergirl's in place behind him. So this is the Titans team Arsenal is now trying to put together. It's not exactly, it's not exactly A-list Titan material. I I feel. Well, no. I mean, they're they're both original Titans. Mm. There's no Robin or Superboy though. I don't think Superboy ever joined the Titans until the Jeff Johns run. Mm. Okay, well I take it back. Anyway, I don't know who these people are, and this confuses me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get I get scared and angry when things can, when things challenge me, PJ. But but yeah, it's they're not. It's I don't know. It's no Green Lantern. It's, it's no. It's, it's the no former Superman. former Speedy and Aqualad and future Red Arrow and Aquaman. It's the artists formerly known as Aqualad and Arrow Lad. Or Speedy, whatever they were called Speedy because Speedy is a good psychic. We should all have a character called Speedy. <laughs> Actually, I've got to say, the, the Green Arrow branding needs a lot of work. Yeah. Like the Arrow Plane, the Arrow Cave. Come on. <laughs> Come on. But they are spying on this ex-KGB guy who is trying to sell five decommissioned Rocket Red warsuits, which are, like, I think even in the 80s when uh, Rocket Red did join the Justice League, even then his armour was, like, you know, old school. It wasn't that much use. Yeah, this is weird, isn't it? Because the Rocket... Yeah, you might have to fill in the gaps now, PJ, because I know that Rocket Red was on the JLA in the 
uh, Justice League Europe days? Uh, I... Yeah, or all the international days. I forget which. And they're basically like atomically powered Russian battlesuits. And there seem to be like a lot of them here rather than there being just one. Yeah, I think vaguely similar to the Crimson Dynamo from Marvel, the Iron Man villain. It's that mm. level of... It's technologically advanced, but not as advanced. And then sort of by this point in continuity, it's actually a little bit backwards compared to what everyone else has. Do you know, like, was there a particular person who wore the armour when on the Justice League? Or was it kind of like the idea that they were more like a military kind of armour and there were no, lots it, of soldiers? It, it was a specific guy on the Justice League, but I can't remember his name. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Well, anyway, look, basically think a low-rent Crimson Dynamo sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So this is what's being sold, and then Arsenal and Tempest realise who it's being sold to, and it's Vandal Savage. Yeah. Um, The uh, Immortal, who... Uh, I guess a quick primer, if you're not familiar with Vandal Savage, Vandal Savage was a an early human, uh, if not a Neanderthal, um, a very early kind of proto-homo sapien, who found a crashed meteorite, which granted him immortality and kind of a degree of healing powers, to some extent. Not kind of like Wolverine level, but... Yeah. So he's basically been alive for tens if not hundreds of thousands of years and while not having any particular superpowers in in themselves uh he is nonetheless uh, an incredibly accomplished fighter tactician terrifying kind of general sort of thing well tempest out and says it doesn't he? he's like yeah vandal savage is jla level so Maybe we should think about things. And Arsenal just says, yeah, so we take him down and prove we're JLA level as well. Yeah, and you start to realise that uh, Arsenal, uh, as anyone who's kind of familiar, vaguely familiar with the character might might agree, um, kind of kind of desperately wants to be recognised, I feel. He wants to be... He wants more recognition than he he kind of currently has. Uh, maybe a little quick to act. Maybe he's not kind of thinking this through a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. So he just says, "Look, rocket red suits have nuclear capability, so we can't let him have them." Where's Jesse Quick? And then she appears because she is the Titans' super speedster at the moment. She's the daughter of Johnny Quick, and it turns out she was just cold and started shivering, and then she was vibrating faster than human. I could see. Yeah, and again, this is kind of what I mean about sea liskers, you know, where they're kind of like, okay, we need a flash, we need a super person, you know, but eh, it's it's not not a flash. It's it's for it's for kind of low sugar alternative. Yeah. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a quick. It's one of the quick family. Yeah, and Tempest says, okay, can we can we get maybe get Nightwing and and Donna in on this because we could do with more help. But uh, instead, Vandal Savage gets... Uh, this is quite good, actually. I like this. Some guy says, hey, would you like some wine to celebrate? Uh, I, I, you might like to try and guess the vintage. And Vandal Savage says, it's a Chateau Lafitte Rothschild 1847. I recognise the sound of it being poured. <laughs> and um, 
Again, I think Morrison having fun here, because I think Morrison loves a good villain and giving them a unique voice. Uh, and uh, we realize that Vandal Savage goes, as Wong grows older, Wong's tastes become refined, and I am a very, very old man as these things go. I remember a world without the wheel. I have seen empires bloom and wither and die, brief as flowers. And periodically, I have chosen to rule the earth. And, uh, which is, wow. And, um, and to make it interesting, of course, because now he's in an age of superheroes, he said he decided to wait until the competition was big enough and arrogant enough to make it worth humiliating. As a helicopter explodes behind him, and that is Arsenal firing an explosive arrow of some kind. So the three of them, Arsenal, Tempest and Jesse Quick, run into battle. Yeah, and um, Jesse Quick, uh, you know, points out to Tempest, goes, uh, hang on, don't you need, like, water? Don't you need, like, the ocean to do your shtick? And he's like, hey, look, don't worry, we're surrounded by snow. You know, that's, it's H2O, that's my business. And uh, Tempest starts making, like, the snow kind of rise up to, like, block the attacking soldiers, just because uh, Arsenal is, like, uh, snaring them with um, with a net arrow. Yep. And then Vandal Savage says, ah, there's a flash in the vicinity. He can tell because of a high-pitched sound. And I, just, I love the idea that you, super speedsters are just referred to as flashes in the DCU. I love that. It's, it's so it's, cool. Yeah. So cool. And Savage just says, I anticipated this. And then he pulls out an ultra-frequency sound weapon that operates way above their range of hearing. But for someone travelling at high velocity, the effect is devastating, and Jesse Quick just falls to the ground. And again, again, just Morrison having fun and proving why Savage, despite not obviously having superpowers, is a deadly foe. It's just because he's he's the eternal tactician. He's done all this before. Like he he knows how to deal with a flash, which is a detail I love. Mm. And he's like um, tranquilizer. Her super basically she has super metabolism, so she'll just drive it out of her system. So you're gonna need to drug her a lot, basically, to make it work. And then in the next panel, she's hit with about five darts, presumably all full of this tranquilizer, as Arsenal fires a neural scrambler arrow at Savage, who just catches it, turns around, and flings it at Supergirl, who has come up behind him, and that takes her out. This is not uh Kara Zorel, this is Matrix Supergirl. Uh, 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 who at this time and place, was the only Supergirl. Yeah. It's not confusing, PJ, at all. No, not in the least. And um, so, yeah, they're two down already. And uh, Tempest, I think, starts to realise that this is going south. So he freezes some of the soldiers and tries to generate a big cloud of steam to cover them so he can rescue, he can rescue his comrades. Uh, but Vandal Savage, he's all over this like a rash, and he goes, "Okay, so you can control water, but because you're a specialist, that means you have uh, a vulnerability." And he uses an axe to cut through a cable from a, a convenient generator and um, electrifies Tempest, taking him out. Yeah, and then he grabs Arsenal by the throat and just says. I planned and fought and won battles you have only read about in your history books, boy. You're no tactician. There's too and much need in you, too much to prove to everyone. It's like a craving. That's your weakness. That's your undoing. And that's and Arsenal's team taken out. 
yeah, like embarrassingly easily. And I guess I kind of also just showing Morrison is very good at kind of armchair psychology because, yeah, uh, Savage just completely gets um, Arsenal's kind of failings, really. And um, it's not enough to kind of knock him out. He has to humiliate him as well. So that's fun. And then we get a scene in the background of soldiers placing the four downed Titans in the uh, rocket red suits as Vandal Savage toasts with a wine that he feels is dreadful. But uh, he feels like toasting anyway, because you've got to celebrate. And um, so from that fun kind of um, intermission, we cut back to uh, Mount Rushmore, uh, where the Justice League and the Justice Legion are all gathered. Uh, you know, they're all about ready to make that kind of jump into the future. Uh, and of course, it will only be a moment from their perspective. The, the Justice League will go into the future. The Justice Legion will stay here to defend this era. And then they'll be gone for however long it takes. And then through the magic of time travel, they'll be back a second later. Like nothing bad could possibly happen. It's all going to go swimmingly. Although Batman hasn't turned up. Oh, that is... doesn't surprise anyone though. And then, yeah, um, I guess just as our man opens the Whirligog to create a portal into the future, uh, almost like a blinking you miss it, the Batman of the future, I guess with Batman's soul captured in a in a in a bottle, kind yeah. of be- beams him into the time portal, and we see kind of a solid-looking Batman appear next to his comrades. Yes, as Aquaman does ask the question, wait, is this the real future or another of those possible future? And then they all sort of dissipate and you get this. It makes me, it, it reminds me of the time travel sequences from um, JLA Wildcats that were really good. Oh, yeah, that's true, actually. Same uh, artist. Yes, I thought it was where you get each member of the league sort of a chain forms connecting them to the future and each one flies towards a different place in the solar system. It's it's a glorious splash page that's very difficult to describe, but you should look it up because it's rather wonderful. And as a weird kind of product of the time, as we see the future planets, uh, I think some of, if not all of them, are actually computer-generated images which have been composited into the artwork. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the most telling is the um, is Starman's uh, kind of star-shaped citadel. Which is is rendered in a in a level of three D, which is is quite charming with our modern eyes because it brings to mind. I'm actually thinking of um, uh, a, like a Sonic three D or like a <laughs> Knuckles Chaotix level kind of graphics. Yep. It's yep. Um, yeah, it's quite cute, really. <laughs> it's probably very cutting edge at the time. And then over the page, we get the six members of the league arriving at their destination. Batman has shown up in a future. Plane, where we hear a voice say, "Ah, oh, the visitors arrived intact." Toy wonder, because Robin <laughs> is a robot in the future and is the toy wonder. Not that you would know that yet. No. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's it, it's like what the hell? And uh, he appears to be on a burning bat plane, descending into a weird, nightmarish, like labyrinth of clowns, basically, which yep. is. I'm sure Batman is enjoying that massively. <laughs> and he's uh, right on schedule, full speed ahead to the arena. And then we cut back to the present day. 
yeah, and of course it's time travel, PJ, and nothing's going wrong. It's all great, and uh, our man's like, um, okay, they've arrived, so now I'll bring them back. And John goes, okay, bring them back. Our man, our man, br- bring them back. And bring then them our back man the starts speaking in weird computer code. <laughs> yeah, um, because he is a robot, and... Um, yeah, uh, he suddenly looks deeply alarmed as all this kind of like uh, computerish, binary, gibberish code kind of starts spewing out of his mouth. Uh, but the things that do kind of make sense are error, 87% autoimmune collapse, 96%. And in a final scream of binary, gr- vents of green smoke explode out of him. And the camera feed kind of fades to static um, as our heroes kind of fade from view. Yeah, and then you get some speech bubbles as Oracle is trying to reach someone and on the watchtower, Zauriel picks her up and she says, look, there's some kind of virus from the future. All machines and people are being infected. It's to be considered hostile within 24 hours of first symptoms. Systems are crashing. Jean and all the people from the future are infected. And then you get this horrific panel, really, of, of our man kneeling on the ground, his head lifted to the sky, his arms sort of splayed out behind him as Jean and future Wonder Woman lie in front of him with weird black blotches appearing on their skin. And, of course, you know it's a good kind of infection, quarantine kind of horror sci-fi movie because our heroes on the moon have to shut down communication so that they because they're safe for now. And uh, Zariel gets the final kind of communication from Oracle and goes, I'm taking the Watchtower offline. Oracle, have courage. We'll find a way. Hmm. Zariel taking the Watchtower offline. I'm sure that won't come back to bite them. And Steel uh, goes, OK, emergency meeting. We are on global crisis alert and there's one particularly important question nobody's even asked yet. What happens to our people in the future? question mark so steel taking charge straight away which is kind of great and suddenly pj as if as if this story hadn't already had enough kind of jumps in space and time we shunt suddenly to the year 85271 ad certus major on the planet mars yeah where there seems to be some kind of news update going on. It's like, oh, heroes from the past, they're here to take part in celebrations for the Prime Superman. As someone else holding a glass of wine says, ah, so it begins, our strategies bear fruit. And basically talks about how Justice Legion A are trapped in prehistory and soon everything's... Uh, but they're going to kill Prime Superman. That is the plan. And it's Vandal Savage again. Uh, uh, yeah, um, who is... Um... Now sporting um, a rather kind of snazzy eye patch, and um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to take in here because um, we also get like all these kind of weirdly uh, intentionally kind of confusing like a uh, kind of uh, news broadcasts, uh, which is like a kind of like storm of energy, uh, a storm of information, which I I genuinely think is how Morrison kind of imagined our data consumption would kind of go in mm. the future. You see that in some of their other work. Um, I guess it's a bit like Twitter nowadays, basically. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is future Twitter, which is even more nightmarish, where 
we're just getting like random crazy stuff going on. Uh, and a nice little throwaway line, which I like, which is potentially dangerous bizarro synthetics may have replaced the primal heroes during time transfer. And again, if you've read All-Star Superman, uh, there is a bizarro plague in that, which I feel is something Morrison had been kind of like toy toying with. I love Morrison's uh, is it two part <laughs> bizarro story during All-Star oh, Superman. So good. I love those two issues. They're great. So good. Um. But PJ, yeah, um, Vandal Savage, future Vandal Savage, is talking to somebody on Mars, and they're talking about a few things. Yeah. So first of all, he says, oh, you know, I mocked this wine once when I was much younger, but now it seems like the sweetest vintage. So I presume it's the same wine we saw him drinking earlier. <laughs> and this speech bubble just comes in going, what is wine? <laughs> <laughs> um, and we realise that Vandal Savage is talking to Solaris, or Solaris, if you will. And Solaris, we just see that kind of burning eye goes, this is my intention. I will make him watch his oldest friends die here in a world beyond their comprehension. I will tear down the sun and take his place in the sky. And as we turn the page, we get this kind of in really like kind of striking shot of Vandal Savage standing on a kind of technological platform, uh, for lack of a better word, with a, a tiny table to hold his wine, as behind him, a machine is excavating the Martian surface. And behind him still is the massive burning figure of Solaris. As Solaris goes, and end the Superman dynasty forever. And Savage says, good to have you back and thinking big, Solaris. The JLA are lambs to the slaughter. Let the games begin. And there we the end. The end. The first part of DC 1 million. And flip it out, PJ. There's a lot there. There is. It's, it's a weird thing with that issue, if I'm being honest, where... It's the first part of a crossover. It's a longer issue than normal. And there's a lot to get in there. And if you haven't read what comes after it already, it can be hard to know what to make of it. Yeah, it's it's a weird... Like, I I when I finally collected it, I enjoyed the setup and the introduction because it was like more Morrison and more of these characters I loved. Yeah. At the same time, trying to put myself in the, in the in the seat of somebody reading this for the first time, it's a weird issue because there's a lot of, like, exposition. Uh, although it's kind of like not exposition. It's more like kind of lots of talking about how amazing the future is. Yeah. Um, and then and then there's also stuff happening. <laughs> there's also kind of stuff happening like around the side. Um it's very odd. It's just kind of like Yeah, I don't know, it's very hard to describe. It's almost like the wrong parts are given more focus in a weird way. Like the what is the future like is given a lot of space, but then the Vandal Savage Rocket Red Titan stuff which feels more important almost to the story is very quick mm -hmm. and introduced very late in the issue and but i think that's just the nature of working on a big crossover story and i'm 
someone out there can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like this might have been the first one Morrison did. Was this their first where they were responsible for the event book itself? It's entirely possible because I know um, Morrison would go on to be one of the architects of 52, uh, but that was definitely later. And this one is is not only like, you know, kind of, you know, written by Morrison. It, they expressly say the entire concept was conceived by Morrison. Yeah. And I think that given how fundamentally weird it is as a time travel story, um, it's got Morrison all over it. So like Morrison clearly was championing these these big ideas and what they kind of meant. But I do feel in this issue, and I think as we'll see across this kind of story as a whole, they were packing a lot in. Like it's like a lot of concepts being squeezed into into this story. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a weird similarity actually. I think to uh, this is the first time I've read this issue without going on to read the rest of the trade. I've never read it just on its own before. And having done so now, I think there is a bit of a similarity to Final Crisis, a story I do not hold in nearly Mm. such high regard. (laughs) In that a lot happens in the first issue. A lot of it doesn't make much sense yet. I think the difference, though, is DC One Million does make sense and tells a powerful story by the end, and Final Crisis is just a load of old bobbins. (laughs) It's... The characters are definitely a lot more likable in DC One in JLA One Million, whatever you want to call it, One Million. I think, um, particularly one problem I, I have with Final Crisis is is that the iteration of the league we're seeing doesn't a hundred percent feel like Morrison's league. Yeah, you know, even when they're writing Superman, even when they're writing Batman, it's like, oh, I think too much water's passed under the bridge, like. These it's not fun. I don't love the characters in the same way that I kind of do at this time period. Um, and speaking of which, like and kind of like moments, you know, char- moments and characters you love. It's really weird. I feel that you know you mentioned like the story giving like weird emphasis to like kind of odd bits. We get that great scene between Steel and Wonder Woman. Yes, which is a good scene. It's like it's it's a nice kind of character moment between two characters that wouldn't normally interact. But it does nothing for the story. Like, it's um, it's great. I'm glad we've got it. But I think you could have probably inserted those two pages into any other issue of JLA, and it would have worked. It would have fit better there, certainly. I think if you... The, the nature of doing an event like this means that you're going to get people reading the event book who've come because they're collecting a different book to the one that you're on. So mm. you'll get people reading this who maybe only collected the Batman books. So Detective mm. Comics and Batman and Shadow of the Bat or whatever was being done at the time. So they were getting the one million issues of that and then maybe that went, well, I'll get the central story as well just to see exactly what's going on. And then you get these weird scenes that yeah, that one certainly feels like it should have been in a JLA book. And I know they cover it again in the next issue of JLA when we eventually get to it. <laughs> There's a conversation yeah. between um, Diana and Wally that I particularly like. But yeah, it does feel a bit taken as its own thing, tacked on. I think if you're reading this as a whole, as part of JLA, it's great. But as part of this event, it's an odd flex. And it's it's weird that like I think some of the scenes feel... Um, a little crowded. Yeah. Like, um, okay, so like you mentioned, like the um, the con- the conclusion action scene with Vandal Savage. I mean, it, that's over very quickly, but I think it is at least 
well paced as an action scene. Yes. Like, I think we could have spent more time with them, but it, it kind of works as a short, sharp, functional scene. But I do find it weird that, like, Morrison would take the time to have, say, a two-page scene between um, uh, Steel and Wonder Woman, which is great, but doesn't really do anything for the overall story, when those two pages could have been used to kind of give another scene a bit more breathing space. Yeah. Because there's a lot of speech bubbles. Like, it's it's very dialogue-heavy to get concepts across. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Um, I feel like it's one that it's taken as part of the series is great, but taken on its own, there's issues with the pacing. It's it's so it is an odd an odd comic, DC one million issue one. I'm trying to also put it in the context of this is Morrison coming off the back of I'm just looking at it now nearly two years of writing JLA. Hmm. And essentially championing and spearheading the most popular or one of the most popular superhero comics in the world at the time. Like, because of Morrison's vision, JLA went from being, uh, you know, a non-starter to being, again, the biggest superhero comic in the world. You know, slight hyperbole, but it's kind of true. Yeah. And then off the back of that, we now have a DC event... And it's entirely created uh, and, you know, co-written, conceived by Morrison and is dealing in a lot of the big kind of mind-blowing concepts that Morrison kind of loves. It feels like a like a kind of passion project. And I feel like Morrison was using that space to get across a lot of their notions about Superman. But I think also it's like it had to be shoehorned into a, a story if that makes sense. So like there's times where the concepts that are being presented kind of outweigh the actual kind of story itself. Um, It's still an entertaining ride, but it doesn't quite flow, I think as well as some of the JLA issues we've read. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with that. Though I do like that now Morrison has been on JLA long enough that they can basically do what they want with it as well and go to these weird big places and it starts with Rock of Ages and then just grows from there <laughs> and this following on from the the absolute high point of Starro and the Sandman <laughs> as well just blows my mind a bit well it's weird isn't it because yeah it's interesting you mentioned like kind of like the creative freedom to do this it does feel like Morrison had if they hadn't done already, had certainly kind of earned the editorial trust now yeah, yeah. to be given given the freedom to just kind of go hog wild, basically, and to go like, this is how it's going to be. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, the, the central concept is so quintessentially Morrison that, like, yeah, it's, yeah, let's just, let's just accelerate every comic to issue one million. And, and then, oh, I'm going to do some quick calculations on my kind of windows 98 calculator <laughs> and work out that yeah what year it would be it's for year eighty five thousand or whatever it's ridiculous but yeah i love it and i'm it's i don't think of when i think of morrison's jla run i don't usually think of dc 1 million but i'm glad we're covering it because i feel i'm going to get a new appreciation for it through doing so indeed there's there's a lot to like I am looking forward to it. And I think if you are 
I don't think you would be reading One Million if you weren't already kind of deep in the paint on JLA, particularly because it's not numbered. Yeah. You know, you have to put a bit of effort to track it down. So for me, at least, it's like it's a slightly wordier, slightly more disjointed Morrison story, but it's featuring all these characters I love. And I know that there are some wonderful character moments coming up. Yes. And it's like, okay, I'm here. Like, I'm in, basically. Yeah, very much so. Likewise. Although one thing that does kind of, you know, did kind of strike me, PJ, and I think um, we'll definitely see more of this in coming issues, but it's interesting that the setup, as it's now been given to us, is that there is a a virus which is, you know, has, has infected the planet and is making people hostile and i just find it interesting that that's a big plot point in this story we're going to see a lot more of it but it's also kind of similar to an upcoming plot line in jla like not a virus as such but something that is making people kind of turn against each other yeah it's a it's a weird kind of double beat in a way that like we kind of get the same thing twice yeah, but I think I prefer the second time it happens. I do as well, actually. Hmm. But there we go. Um. Any, I mean, PJ, is anything else kind of stand out to you, or anything else we, you know, you'd like to focus on? Uh, no, not really, because again, I think it's hard to take this issue in isolation. Uh, and yeah, we just have to get on with it move to the next part which is not going to be dc one million issue two because that's not how the trade <laughs> brings it to us but uh, we'll get into that next episode yeah that's a whole other kettle of fish um i guess i would i would i would say that like i like how you know if you ever needed evidence convincing you that um steel is a wonderful addition to the to the jla and is is a wonderful character in the right hands um you can see it here like i think yeah. this is Perhaps where you start to see Morrison really, really, really taking steel, going like, oh, yeah, he deserves to be here. Like, oh, he's this great. is why I put him on the team. <laughs> yes. Because you said, you, I think you've said as well, PJ, that Morrison has said that they were almost a little surprised at how much they took to steel. Yeah. And how much sense it made for them to be on the team. Yeah. Well, I think originally the plan was just the league needed a tech guy. So they went with steel. Uh, but. Yeah, then Morrison themselves were surprised uh, how much of a role Steel ended up taking. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a shame it hasn't really been replicated by future creators. Definitely. Most definitely. Um, but PJ, have have we have we wrung every last drop of entertainment out of out of this this uh, this episode? I think we have. I don't want to outstay my welcome. No, it's going to be a long episode already actually. So I, I guess on that note, if we really have said everything we need to, um, I suppose I should say a massive thank you to Gav Mitchell for doing our uh, our incredible cover artwork. And to Elliot Red for composing and performing our, our fantastic theme tune, Justice. And uh, PJ, is there anything you, you want to kind of shout about? Um, I'm hot. I'm real hot. I'm also very hot. <laughs> um, I would say... I, I, I would very cheekily say that uh, I think by the time this episode comes out there will be maybe one day maybe one day left on a Kickstarter I'm currently running for a card game I made called uh, Bread Rolls which is an expansion to a card game I previously made along with the team at Big Punch Studios called Sandwich Maskers so yeah it's just a daft game about making sandwiches 
poisoning sandwiches and trying not to get caught in the process. And yeah, if you want to check it out, just search for Sandwich Maskers on Kickstarter. Um, you've got like 24 hours, I think, if you're listening to this. Maybe. So get on act, it act, quickly. What act, are you doing listening quickly. to us? Go back it now. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, PJ and I we're uh, we're on the social medias. If you want to, if you want to hear us kind of ramble on, we're generally quite nice. Uh, and yeah, PJ, if um, if I haven't monopolized the ending too much, uh, is would you like to see us home in your, you know, your own unique fashion? I would, but I've melted. 